this book, actually, let me go ahead and encourage you, turn to the book of Luke. Luke chapter 1 is where we begin this morning. And if you don't have a Bible, you can grab, the, as I mentioned earlier, that Bible that's in the seat bottom in front of you, and it'll be on page 855 is where we're beginning this morning. Page 855 in that ESV Bible under your seat. A lot of your ESV versions or ESV copies will also have the same page number. 855. I'll give you a moment to turn there. The book of Luke is written to uh, someone named Theophilus. We don't know who this person was. It may not even have been a person. It may have been code for, if you break the word down, lover of God. It may have been written to general lovers of God in that early context or that ancient context in the early church. Um, I like that sort of ambiguity. I like that thought because then it travels 2,000 years later where a bunch of lovers of God can also sit at Luke's feet and hear from Luke uh, what uh, he says, the things we need to know to be confident in our faith. And I think in some ways this book is a nice tutor for lovers of God to love God more. That's my goal in this Advent season. I think that is fitting that we're going to the book of Luke is that we can truly enjoy God I've reminded myself this week, and I was sharing with Clint just, before, just a few minutes before this, uh, I'm saying this over and over in my head. We're not a business, and you're not patrons. We're not a business, and you're not patrons. I'm saying it over and over again. We're not a business. We don't present a service. We don't present a product for you to then assess with a cost-benefit analysis to make, make sense of whether you want to come back or not. That's not what you're supposed to be doing this morning. That's not what we're doing. We do cost-benefit analysis on everything that we do. Dry cleaners, gas stations, uh, everywhere we go, grocery stores. Do they have everything that I want and do they have it where I need it? Everything we do all day long is a cost-benefit analysis. But let me just kind of give you a little perspective. Hopefully husbands and wives are not thinking that way when they go on a date together. If they are, I bet it's not going to be a very fun date. If a husband is sitting there thinking, I'm not really sure I'm going to get anything out of this. Is this going to be fun? Is this going to be worth my time? Sound like a great date, doesn't it? Sound like it's going to be a flopper. Okay, ideally in a husband and wife, when they're going to spend time together on a date, they're not even conscious of time necessarily. They're not conscious of whether they're having some service or product that comes out of their time together. They're conscious of, they're really hopefully unconscious of all those things and are just surrendering to and enjoying the person that they're with. They're not patrons. Now they're not worshipers either, but they're closer to worship than a lot of times we can be in church. Okay, ideally, when we come here on a Sunday morning, my goal in preaching is that you will have time with your God as we worship, not that you leave with a product, that you leave with some sort of service, because we're not a business and you're not patrons. We're God lovers. So my goal in these next few minutes is you adore our God, that you enjoy our God and I think Luke is a great escort to that because he's got these little vignettes, these little stories, these little scenes, in the, really in the whole book, but in these first few chapters that acquaint us with what happened at the first advent, that help us experience what they experienced. But let me encourage you in this thought, too, before we continue. We're going to look at the, uh, one of these uh, stories about a man named Zechariah. Let me encourage you in this thought. These stories are to help us with our God-loving. They're not to help us with who we need to model. 
Okay, when Brad preached the first week, it wasn't about, hey, you, let's all go be like Mary. When I preached last week, it wasn't about, let's all go be like Mary. And this week, it's not, let's all go be like Zechariah. We're climbing into these stories so that we can see what they see, so that we can feel their feels, so that we can enjoy what they're enjoying, the God that they're enjoying. That's the focus of our time together. So they are merely escorts for us, guides into the presence of God, a living being who's here with us right now. Think about that for a minute. Not a collection of ideas, not a collection of truths, not a collection of data, but a living being who's actually here with us right now. We're going to climb through a vignette this morning, through the story of a man named Zachariah, to enjoy who he enjoyed. All right? Now, let's begin with... Um, First, we're going to begin with some background, and then I'm going to develop through the scripture a setting, and then we're going to enjoy specifically the Benedictus, and you'll, I'll explain that when we get there. Beginning in verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her, na- her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. This is quite a privilege for a priest, and this, uh, this is Zachariah's turn. It's his time to do that. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. Zechariah is in there. He's doing his job, lighting the incense. And all of a sudden, an angel of the Lord appears. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him. Okay, I hope you can appreciate that. That would be pretty troubling. And fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you're going to call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Awesome. Awesome news. Zechariah is getting there from the angel of the Lord, Gabriel. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered, angel answered him, I am Gabriel. Do you know who you're talking to? <laughs> it's like the response. Do you know who you're hearing this message from? How could you even ask how this is going to happen? I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he's unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, 
he went to his home. And after these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked upon me to take away my reproach among his people. It's a cool story here. You climb into the details, or you can imagine Zachariah's shock at the presence of the Lord, or presence of the angel of the Lord showing up. He gets the news that, hey, you're going to get the son that you've been praying for. Zachariah says, how in the world that's going to happen? How's that going to happen? I'm an old fella. I guess my wife is old too, and that's just not, it uh, just doesn't even compute, doesn't even make sense. As a consequence for that, as a consequence of his unbelief, the angel of the Lord says you're going to be mute until these, th- until these things unfold. Now, what's interesting, let me just kind of interject this, this piece of information before we continue on with the setting. In their context, when something, when in the ancient context, when someone was, was struck mute, it also meant that they were struck deaf. Okay, so he's struck, he cannot speak, but he also cannot hear. And I'm going to show you a little clue into that here in a moment. Okay, so we're going to continue our story in verse 57 of chapter 1. Fast forward nine months, at least nine months. It may have been nine months and some change, but we know that it's at least the period of time that it would have taken for John, for Elizabeth to conceive, and then John to grow in the womb, and John to be born. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father. Now that's a clue that he's also deaf as well. They're making signs to him inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered, and immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. We're about to look at that blessing here in a moment. And fear came on all the neighbors, and all these things were were talked about through all the whole country of Judea. And all who heard them laid up in their hearts, saying, What then... Or what then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. I mentioned last week, developing the story last week, and mentioned a few times where Elizabeth and Mary are meeting and the, the Magnificat took place. Uh, we looked at that last week in the quiet home of Zechariah. This is precisely why it was quiet. Now, sure, Elizabeth could talk, but Zechariah is struck deaf and dumb. And it's in this very home that this new life comes, this little boy is born named John the Baptist. He's just named John at that point. I'm sure they didn't call him John the Baptist as a little wee, wee lad. Come here, John the Baptist. That'd be weird. And his dad's tongue in that moment is loosened. Okay, it's a pretty exciting moment. Finally, after nine months where he's not able to speak or hear, his tongue is loosened. And um, uh, I've, I've thought about how that might unfold. I thought about how, how his friends might joke about it. And I'll, this, I, don't, I don't know if this would have actually gone, gone down or not. After his, his first words, after nine months of silence, are blessing the Lord. Uh, that this, this is like a bless, blessing with a gestation period. I mean, this is like a really pregnant blessing. Okay, you're getting this. You're getting the irony. This, this, this is after uh, a long pregnant pause, Zechariah finally speaks. 
I thought that was really funny, and I, I'm, I, I'll give you a moment to kind of think about that. A long nine-month pregnant pause, Zechariah finally speaks. Wow, I have to work, work harder on that. <laughs> Let me just throw in a devotional thought. Maybe this will redeem the moment. Here's a devotional thought for you. Now, I'm, I'm not preaching here for the next couple minutes, for the next minute or so. This is a devotional, which is different from preaching. Okay, and I'll, I'll make a comment about that later. This is a wee devotional thought considering our season. I find myself pretty much between Thanksgiving and New Year every year so gorged on food, so busy with activities. Christy and I both have birthdays in December. So add Thanksgiving, add to Thanksgiving and Christmas. We have two birthdays in between there. We are so stuffed with food and activities and um, recreation that, frankly, I get numb. I get numb at a time where I really want to be tuned in and I want to be sensitive and I want to be thinking about the gravity of what we're considering in this season. The many activities I'm sure that you have on your schedule, I bet do the same. Let's just consider it just for a moment that um, very seldom do we actually have time where we sit in silence. I'm enjoying the devotional thought right here that after nine months of silence that Zachariah's first words are words of blessing. And I wonder what might come after just a few moments of silence for us. Let me encourage you with this devotional thought in the middle of this sermon. This is not the sermon. This is a devotional thought. Let me encourage you in this season to maybe schedule regular time, maybe even daily time, to be quiet and to listen and to consider what God has done for you and what God has done for the world in the person and work of Christ. You might find some blessing comes out of your mouth as a response. Be mindful, conscious, connecting to a living being who's spending time with you in those quiet moments. Okay, back to our sermon. So Zechariah speaks after nine months of silence, a truly pregnant pause, and here are the words that he speaks beginning in verse 67 of chapter 1. His father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Now, I'm not going to read the rest of it because I want to just kind of give you a, a breakdown of this um, blessing, a breakdown of this prophecy. Uh, verses 76 through 80 are about John the Baptist. Okay, Morrison Kinder came up and read that the entire passage this morning. The second half of that passage is about John's new son, John the Bee. The first part of the passage is about what God has done and the person and work of Jesus. Okay, that's where I want to spend the morning. Okay, there's certainly some stuff to be learned from the second part of that, beginning in verse 76, but we're going to spend the next few minutes in verses 67 through 75. I want to give you a little outline of the passage. In some ways, what I want to do is I want to acquaint you with the furniture in the room. Okay, because we're going to sit in some of the furniture later. I want you to see the furniture of this passage. I want you to have this passage in view 
as we spend these next few minutes together. We're going to think Zachariah's thoughts. We're going to see his sights. We're going to feel his feels through the things that he brings out in this blessing. Let me give you a bird's eye view of the furniture. Okay, What has God done? God has visited and redeemed his people. Okay, That's first and foremost. If you make it an outline, I'm going to help you with an outline right here. What has God done? He has visited and redeemed his people. Those are, those are two very important pieces of furniture we're going to sit in in just a moment. Okay, How has he done that? Through the horn of salvation that he provided. Okay, what has God done? He has visited and redeemed his people. How has he done it? Through the horn of salvation that he has provided. And here's the purpose for that. That there's three of them in this passage. First, in verse 71, to defeat the enemies of God's people. Okay, again, if you're making an outline, I'm fleshing it out for you. What has God done? He's visited and redeemed his people. How did he do it? He provided the horn of salvation. And why did he do it? What is he up to? He has provided a means to defeat the enemies of God's people. That's the first thing. The second thing, the second piece of furniture there in that list of things that he's done is to follow through on his covenant promises to Abraham. Okay, that's in verse 72. And then in verse 74, he's done this so that his people could serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness. Okay, I'm going to talk you through those things again. See, the problem is we're a bunch of Gentiles. Okay, we're a bunch of Gentiles. We're really going really to have to work this morning because we're hearing from a Jew. A Jew that spent nine months in silence. <laughs> a Jewish priest on top of that. A guy that's dedicated his life to understanding the first two-thirds of this Bible. Okay, So here's a bunch of Gentiles. We're sort of parachuting into this story. We're going to have to do some work to climb into what Zechariah is thinking. So I want to help you with an outline of this passage. What has God done? He's visited and redeemed his people. How did he do it? By raising up a horn of salvation. And why did he do it? To defeat the enemies of God's people, first. Second, to follow through on his covenant promises to Abraham. And third, so that his people could serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness. Now, now that we've pointed out the furniture in the room, we're going to sit in two recliners just for a few minutes of God visiting and redeeming his people. Okay, so just kind of get comfy. Kind of visualize yourself sitting in this piece of furniture, enjoying the fact that God visited and redeemed his people. That's the first words out of this guy's mouth after nine months of silence. These two words, visit and redeem, are in the aorist tense in Greek. It means that they're presented like they're past tense events. Okay, and it, we don't really have a clear sense on what Zachariah is thinking at this point, but we can have the sense that he is speaking about something that God has proven to have a pattern of, of visiting and redeeming his people. We can't think Zachariah's thoughts over a nine-month period of silence, but we can get a sense of what he must have thought about during those nine months by the first words that come out of his mouth. And the first words that come out of his mouth sound like Exodus language. It sounds like if we can think his thoughts, if we can see his sights, he's thinking about the Exodus. Let me share a passage with you. I'm going to have you turn to some places this morning, but this one you don't need to turn to. I've got it on hand. And I just want to share a glimpse into the book of Exodus that gives us, might give us a sense at what Zechariah is thinking 
as the events of Christ's birth are unfolding in front of him. In Exodus chapter 4, Moses has gone to Midian. Moses has spoken or heard from God from the burning bush. God has said, you need to go back to Egypt. You're going to lead my people out of slavery. Okay, so Moses goes back. He finds his brother Aaron in the wilderness because God tells Aaron to meet him in the wilderness. And Moses told Aaron all the words of which the Lord had sent him to speak and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. And then Moses told Aaron, or then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. And Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And listen, and the people believed that, and, and when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshiped. There's Exodus language going on here in this passage. And if you keyed in on that word visited, you were keying in on the right word. Zechariah, it seems, is is really conscious of the Exodus as the lens through which he's seeing the events of his son's birth and the upcoming birth of the Christ child. The language he uses in this passage, hopefully you can think about these other pieces of furniture in the passage that I already pointed out. In verse 71, of being saved from their enemies. That sounds like Exodus language, being saved from the Egyptians. And God remembering his holy covenant in verse 72, the promise that he made to Abraham. He prophesied that this people that he was going to build through Abraham were going to spend time in Egypt. And then in verse 74, of being delivered from the hands of their enemies in order to serve him without fear. That's Exodus language. What did God tell Pharaoh through Moses every time Moses approached him? Set my people free so that they may go into the wilderness and worship me. Man, it's Exodus language. It seems this guy spent nine months camped out on the very least The Exodus, the theme there is freedom from slavery so that his people can worship. Seems like a a good thought to have as the birth of the Christ is imminent. Seems he is thinking, if we can think his thoughts, see his sights, it seems he is thinking about the Exodus. Now let me just throw in a little side note. This is an encouragement to God's people at Crosspoint. If you're visiting, it's an encouragement to you as well. If you're uh, one of our regular folk, um, church family, let me encourage you in this. I probably don't have to encourage most of you that have been here for a period of time. Um, just this thought. I spent most of my childhood not really having any clue. I should say childhood, young adulthood, and early years of marriage having no clue what the exodus was. Having no clue where it took place, having no clue where it fit in the storyline, and no clue what it had to do with anything. I spent most of my childhood sitting under what I called earlier devotional preaching, where someone would spend the entire morning encouraging you to be silent like Zachariah was silent. And that would be the sum and total of the message. I lived on devotional preaching. Thankfully, God used it, but it gave me no sense of the storyline. It gave me no sense of Zachariah's thoughts here in this passage as Zachariah is clearly camped out on the story of the Exodus. So here's my encouragement to God's people right now. Immerse yourself into the Old Testament stories, learning the storyline. Because then you can climb into Zachariah's benediction 
and go, ah, I'm thinking those thoughts with you, Zechariah. I'm seeing those things with you because I lived through them as I read through the story of the Exodus. It is one of the, I mean, apart from creation, I would put it alongside the creation account. It is something that every Christian should be well-versed in. The book of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. If you don't really have a sense of what God has done for you in Christ and the gospel, start over there. Start over there. Immerse yourself in those stories. Learn to know and understand and appreciate that God. And then you'll come back over the New Testament with a new set of eyes. I think apart from these Old Testament stories like the Exodus and the exile, the conquest, apart from those Old Testament stories, the good news is just news. Hmm, That sounds pretty good. I'll take it. When you climb into those stories and you live those lives and you climb into those, you feel those feels in their stories, then you come back over here and, man, it's like a visceral worship. It's like, okay, I climbed into them. I experienced it with them. So that's my little side note and encouragement. Get saturated with the story. Start with the Exodus. Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Now back to Zechariah's thoughts. A visit and redemption in the Exodus. He is speaking Exodus language. Something else that I think that is cool about the Exodus story is the visit and redemption of God's people from Egypt too came with the birth of a little child. Man, it's beautiful. The birth of a little child, ironically, in a context where there's also an edict from the king to kill all the children. Yet this little child survives. And this little child will lead his people out of Egypt. If you hold up the book of Exodus next to the book of Luke, both books start with chapters dedicated to the birth of a child. When God visits his people and he's going to redeem his people, he shows up with a child, a special child. He did it with Hannah. We considered it last week. He did it with Sarah. Man, that's what God does. When God visits to redeem his people, he shows up with a little baby. And the little baby is going to be how he redeems his people. These things that we've talked about just in these last few minutes, these thoughts that Zechariah must have been thinking, these sights he must have been seeing in the Exodus, those are beautiful, aren't they? But they're just shadows. They're just shadows of the substance that Zechariah is enjoying in this Benedictus. Now, we can believe that he's thinking those thoughts. We can trust that he spent nine months pouring into the story of the Exodus, among everything else in the Old Testament. I imagine he got some of the best studying done he'd ever gotten in his life. Nine months of being deaf and mute. But man, those are just shadows of the visit and redemption of God in this story where the horn of salvation comes. God has visited now and redeemed his people by sending this horn of salvation raised up in the house of David. That's where we're going to sit next. We're going to continue to sit in our recliners of visiting and redemption, but we're going to look at what's centerpiece in the middle of the room, and what's centerpiece in the middle of the room is the horn of salvation that's been raised up from the house of David. Zechariah has most certainly been alluding to God's past visits and deliverance, but the focus of this blessing is present and future tense, and it's God's present tense visit and redemption in the person of Christ. I want you to turn to Psalm 132. This is the second of three or four places I'm having you go this morning. Psalm 132. 
And I have a page number for you if you're using your, your, your Bible that's under the seat. It's 519. Psalm 132, let me give you a little bit of background as you're turning there, is a psalm um, that the psalmist is writing uh, with an expectancy, a hope in the restoration of David's line to the throne. I don't know exactly when it was written. I wonder if it wasn't written during the period of the kings where there's good king, bad king, good king, bad king, bad king, bad king, bad king, good king, good king, bad king. If you read through those books and you go, ah, what a roller coaster. Man, these guys, even the good guys end up being a disappointment. Even the good ones end up failing him. So we, can, we have to put air quotes around good king. I wonder if it's during that period that the psalmist is writing this psalm. He's pining for the restoration of David's line to the throne. Listen to what he says in Psalm 132, beginning in verse 11. The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. That's another way of saying one of your offspring. Someone from your line I will set on the throne. Fast forward down to verse 15. Actually, let's go and just for the sake of context, let's read all through. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. I I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. And look, her priests I will clothe with salvation, and her saints will shout for joy. This sounds like Zechariah and Elizabeth. Remember last week in Elizabeth's home where Elizabeth is like shouting this blessing over Mary. And Mary responds with the Magnificat. And you hear this salvation language from Zechariah's first words after nine months of silence. Her priests I will clothe with salvation, and her saints will shout for joy. There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I've prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. Zechariah believed this child that we're speaking of, not his son. Zechariah believed this child that his niece was carrying. The one that caused his son to, to leap in the womb, that child. The child that Mary was carrying to be the one that was promised in this psalm. The horn that sprouts from David. He is how God has visited and redeemed His people, ultimately, through this horn, this sprouts from David. Now, I have to confess to you something. I'm 50 years old This a couple weeks ago. I've been a Christian since I was six. Raised in the church. I don't know how many Christmas stories I've heard over the years. You know, you think every year you're probably going to hear it a couple times at least, hopefully, if you're growing up in a Christian home. So let's say... A hundred, I think it's a conservative estimate. A hundred times I've heard the Christmas story complete with Zachariah's prophecy in there somewhere. And I don't think that before this last week I've ever asked the question, well, what is a horn of salvation? Some of y'all might be like, man, duh. Everybody knows what that is. Maybe you are, I don't know. But I was like, what is a horn of salvation? I've got to preach about it after all. I better know what it is, Right? 
So I did some research this week. I'm like, man, I got to figure out what this is. And first of all, what is a horn? What even horn? Are we talking about like a, a trumpet? Key Walker would love that. He's like a trumpet guy, like a bugle or something. What are we talking about? Well, let me give you a clue what we're talking about. We're actually talking about the horns on a critter. Okay, And specifically, likely, they're talking about the horns on a wild ox. Now, I've, don't put this image up yet. I've got an image that I want to throw up here in a second. But when I say wild ox, what I've been thinking about like my whole life about a wild ox would be like, you know, oxen that you hook your cart to and they're out there working or they, you got the plow and this ox, you know, he's got these horns they're like, ooh, scary. This guy couldn't even catch me, you know, ooh, scary. All right, let me show you what a wild ox looks like. Let's hit this slide. You have it handy? Oh, yeah. Okay, let me just tell you, these two guys uh, are like um, photoshopped in there. Because two guys would not be standing next to that critter like that, like he's like your pet. This, this animal right here is extinct now, okay, the animal that's in this picture. But this will give you a sense of what a wild ox looked like, okay? That's, that's serious right there, and those horns are no joke. All right, it's the, the, the guy pulling the cart, that's a different image than I had of this thing right here. Okay, this is the horn we're talking about. The horn that there are two of, I, I got my, Jeff, I got my handy laser here, just so we can make sure we're not missing it. Uh, see it right there? Now that is a serious horn. That's the horn of salvation that we're talking about, that Zachariah is thinking about when he's thinking about this little baby. <laughs> you see the irony in that? Like, what? The horn of salvation is going to come through this, this little baby. This is what he's thinking about. Man, horns are interesting in the Bible. I did a little research on the horns, this kind of horn, because I'm finally asking the question, what kind of horn are we talking about? Daniel had plenty of visions in the book of Daniel, and you can leave that slide up there for now. Um, he had these visions of these powerful kingdoms. Listen to this passage in Daniel chapter 7. He's speaking about these beasts, and in this case, he's speaking about the scariest one, the one that had the most power. He says, After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. Man, that's like, for Daniel, that's the picture of strength and power. Now, albeit evil, he's talking about evil kingdoms here, but horns, like a bunch of horns. That's starting to make sense. Horns are the symbol of power and strength. It turns out it's not just religious nonsense. I've spent 50 years not even asking the question, just kind of assuming, oh, well, whatever, a horn of salvation. I don't know what that is, but I like it, I guess. Man, it's a treat when you really start to ask some questions like that. Well, what does this mean? He's using something as simple as the horns on a mighty beast to represent the power and strength that are coming through the horn of salvation that's sprouting from the line of David. Man, I want to think Zachariah's thoughts now. That sounds good. Wow, that sounds awesome. Man, it's not an unusual thought for us to think about strength and power in regards to horns. I went to an Aggie ball game a few weeks ago. A friend of ours invited us to a, a ball game, and some of you are Aggies, or some of you are at least been to an Aggie ball game. You know, the, the Aggie wore him and saw these horns off. 
I mean, that's the thought. That's going to put them to shame. That's going to defeat the enemy. Let's saw their horns off because the horns are the business end of the beast. That's where stuff gets done, man. Daniel and I went hunting a couple weeks ago. And, well, this is probably a couple months ago. We went hunting, went dove hunting. And I was showing Daniel how to clean some dove out in the woods. And I pulled, it was already dark, so I pulled the vehicle up and I had the headlights on. And we're out there. I'm kneeling down in the dark showing him how to clean some dove. And um, we hear a noise and we look up. And it's like a five-point, six-point buck. I mean, it's dark. Our headlights are shining. That's all that's shining. And a five- or six-point buck comes running out of the darkness into the light at us. And it's like from me to Christy right there. And Daniel and I are like, oh, I mean, just the visceral response, like, that scares me to death. I wasn't scared of the creature. I'm looking at those horns. And he's like a little old wee five point. Can you imagine this joker coming out of the darkness? Man, I get the notion that horns are the picture of power and strength because it's the business end of something getting done. And I love the thought of envisioning Christ now as a horn of salvation on the birthday of his long-awaited son. Think about this for a moment. On the birthday of his long-awaited son that he's prayed for, that he's hoped for, after nine months of silence and deafness, this man Zachariah's first words were about another child. The horn of salvation, a strong and mighty one, a horn that sprouts from David, a horn of iron. Man, let me show you a beautiful picture. And, um, you can turn here. I'd like for you to turn here because I think it's something you'll enjoy seeing uh, the re- relevance and the reference in Micah. I know Micah's an obscure book, so I have a page number for you. Some of you that don't know where Micah is, is in your own Bible, you can grab that Bible in the seat bottom. It's page 778. I really want you to see this. I want you to see this connection. Micah chapter 4. I think this is the last place I have you turn this morning. So usually I give you a map for the morning so you kind of have a, have a sense of where we're going. And I didn't give you a map this morning, so you have to kind of hang in there. You're about three-quarters of the way through the message, so you're, you're good. Hang in there. Listen to this passage in Micah chapter 4. Beginning in verse I'm going to begin just in verse 1, but I'm going to really jump over to verse 13. This is prophecy about what's going to happen. This is after the exile, um, or or during the exile, toward the tail end of the exile. Micah is prophesying about what's going to happen eventually. In chapter 4, verse 1, this is uh, maybe four or 500 years. I don't know the exact time frame before Christ comes. It's prophecy about what's going to happen eventually. It says, it shall come to pass in the latter days, in verse 1, that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills, and peoples shall flow to it, and many nations shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord. Okay, it's awesome prophetic passage, a passage that, that Zechariah would have been steeped in, a passage that Anna was steeped in as she pined for the birth of the Christ child. A passage that Simeon was steeped in as he pined, as they're pining for the birth of the Christ. Look over at verse 13. Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will make your horn iron, and I will make your hooves bronze, and you shall beat in pieces many peoples, and you and, and shall devote their gain to the Lord, their wealth to the Lord of the whole earth. Now 
This is a little, another reference to the horn. Look down a few verses in chapter 5. Verse 2. When the wise men came looking for the Savior, looking for whoever was born underneath this star, and they came to Herod's um, palace, and they're asking around, hey, where's this child? Where's this child supposed to be born? And the guys uh, do some research. This is where they went. Micah chapter 5, verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. That is clearly a reference to the Christ child. Just a couple of verses after he's reminded that this iron or this, this horn is going to be made iron. Man, I love thinking Zachariah's thoughts. It seems after nine months of silence, he's enjoying a strong and mighty child that was to be born. And a horn of iron that sprouts from David that will be born in Bethlehem. He is the means by which God's enemies and the enemies of God's people will be defeated. Jesus, let me just give you this summary thought before we just consider one more thing. He's our offense. And he's a good one. He's a good one. He's our offense. Let me show you also in this horn imagery, he's also our defense. Um, you can hit that next slide. Uh, Jake, thanks. I'll share just a brief passage with you. Uh, just another flip side, another side of this horn thing. Uh, studying the horn uh, imagery and studying what it meant and what, um, what, was, what was at stake there when he presents him as the horn that sprouts from David, um, I also considered, what, let me just consider the altar. Let me consider the imagery of the furniture in the tabernacle and temple. And there were two altars, the brazen altar and the altar of incense. And both of these altars had horns at all four corners. I'm, I'm talking horns, like horns like that were on the wild ox. That's kind of, kind of an obscure one. Hit that next slide. Okay, see those little horns sticking out all four sides? It was on the brazen altar and also on the altar of incense. Let me share a passage with you from the book of Leviticus, a little snapshot into the importance of those horns. I think you're, you're going to see a beautiful uh, connection here if you engage this. Chapter 4, verse 27. If any one of the common people sins unintentionally in doing any one of the things that by the Lord's commandments ought not to be done and realizes his guilt, if anybody sins or the sin which is committed is made known to him, he shall bring for his offering a goat, a female without blemish, for his sin which he's committed. He shall lay his hand on the head of the sin offering and kill the sin offering in the place of burnt offering. And the priest shall take some of its blood with his finger and put it on the horns of the altar of burnt offering and pour out all the rest of its blood at the base of the altar and all its fat he shall remove as the fat is removed from the peace offerings and the priest shall burn it on the altar for a pleasing aroma to the Lord and the priest shall make atonement for this worshiper and he shall be forgiven. 
I've enjoyed the imagery of the, the horns. Now, connecting, I, I guess I could say that I've been a Christian for, 50, uh, uh, for 44 years, grew up in the church, trusted Christ at the age of six. I've been around and in this for nearly 50 years, and I've never really asked, well, why are those horns on that altar either, and what's that all about? It's a beautiful picture where, that's fine, where they find atonement. It's the business end of God getting something done with people's sin. Man, given what's actually taking place on that altar, it better have horns. Because that's a strong work that's taking place there. That's a mighty work that's taking place there when your sins are atoned for. And the blood that's slathered on those horns is a nice image. It's also the horns of the altar or when priests were consecrated or when sacrifices were made, blood was placed on the horns of the altar. What a fitting image. They better have horns. I'll share one last image with you having to do with the horns from the book of uh, 1 Kings. This is after um, Solomon is an anointed king. You might remember that David had multiple sons. Um, he had a son named Adonijah who usurped the uh, reign and actually made himself king. But then David anointed his son Solomon king. And here's how that went down for Adonijah. Listen to this. In 1 Kings chapter 1, then all the guests of Adonijah, apparently he's at a big banquet and sitting around with all his, his buddies reveling in his new kingship. All the guests of Adonijah trembled and rose after they heard that Solomon had been anointed king. Like, oh, I better put my distance between me and this Solomon or this Adonijah fella. And each went his own way. And Adonijah feared Solomon. So he arose and went and took hold of the horns of the altar. You ever played tag? Like you got a, a base. The horns were base for Adonijah. Watch what unfolds. Then it was told Solomon, Behold, Adonijah fears King Solomon, for behold, he has laid hold of the horns of the altar, saying, Let King Solomon swear to me first that he will not put his servant to death with the sword. And Solomon said, If he will show himself a worthy man, not one of his hairs shall fall to the earth. But if wickedness is found in him, he shall die. So King Solomon sent, and they brought him down from the altar. You envision, he's still holding on. You imagine they had to pull him or pry him away from this altar. He's holding on to the horns of the altar. And he came and paid homage to King Solomon. And Solomon said to him, go to your home. Man, that's another beautiful picture. The altars, both with horns, were the place where you found forgiveness and refuge. Man, they were base. They were the safe zone. Man, thinking Zachariah's thoughts, seeing his, his sights and feeling his feels, it seems as if he sees that this Christ would be the business end of God's plan that meant defeat of our ultimate enemies of sin, Satan, and death. Man, that's going to take a serious set of horns. And Christ was that horn and is that horn. And yet he's also the bloody altar that we run to to find potent forgiveness and refuge. Man, I love that imagery. Psalm 18.2 says, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. Jesus is both our offense and our defense, horn and refuge. This was the ultimate visit of God in the person and work 
of Christ. The horn is the ultimate redemption. The mighty movements of God in the Exodus were just a wee tutor. Just a tutor to the might and strength and redemption and deliverance of the horn of salvation. Let's pray.